Well, you can join me in opening your Bibles to the book of First John and chapter 4, and that is on page 1023 if you're going to use one of the Bibles under seats nearby you. And if you don't uh, own a Bible, please do take that uh, and read it. We'd love for you to have it. Well, we always pray at the front end of sermons because we recognize that uh, what we long to see happen here can only happen if God himself does it. We want to see, have the eyes of our heart, as the Apostle Paul speaks, opened to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus, and that sight is a transforming sight. Open our eyes to behold Him and have our hearts transformed so we live differently. So this isn't just about uh, how-to steps that we can implement in our lives and walk out with a few strategies and tips. Uh, Those those can be helpful. Uh, What we long to see happen is Uh, our hearts to be changed, the core of our personalities to be changed. We walk out different and more like Jesus, and God alone can do that, and He does it through His Word. He makes amazing statements in the Bible about what He does through the Bible. Um, Just like in the beginning of creation, He speaks, let there be light, and there's light. Uh, He speaks the gospel to our hearts, and light shines into our hearts. So, let's pray. Would you unite your minds and hearts with me? Our Father, we come to You to receive Your Word to be healed and nourished by your word, to be convicted by it, to be transformed by it, to be deeply comforted by it. So we pray that you would do the things that only you can do, that as we read your word and seek to understand it and live in light of it, your spirit would be working powerfully in our hearts and our minds, deep in our wills, uh, to do the transforming work that we need you to do, that you love to do. So thank you for loving to do this. And so we're expectant. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, we're continuing our Advent series this morning. Advent meaning arrival, looking back in history to the first Advent, the first arrival in, in history when Jesus came and was born. And then this also leads us, as we remember that first arrival, to have hope cultivated in our hearts for the second arrival of Jesus, which is yet to come. And so in this series, we're drawing attention to several key realities that Jesus brings in His Advents. And so last week, we focused on the Advent of life, that Jesus brings true and full and eternal life to us and to the world. And this morning, we're focusing on the Advent of love. And this is not a thin or frothy or merely sentimental love. This is a strong, eternal, deep, powerful, transforming love that he brought. So let's read 1 John chapter 4 and verses 7 to 12 together. This is God's Word, and he speaks to us by his Spirit as we read. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God. And knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Verse 9 In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Well, John's main burden in this uh, little paragraph is to encourage Christians to cultivate a culture of love for one another together here. That's his command. Love one another. Everyone wants love. Um, As the Beatles said, it's all you need. Um, And yet we look around, and though our world values love, uh, we're having an incredibly hard time pulling it off and practicing it. I was reading an article about a famous songwriter who emphasized and was known for emphasizing love and peace, and yet his son uh, was sharing how he always had a really hard time with that. Because though he was, his dad was so well known for love, um, and that was his message, he didn't feel that love at home. And so he had a dad who he claimed, proclaimed love to the world but didn't show it in his own home, with the people who were closest to him, his closest neighbors. And we see this kind of contrast in many places. Our culture is uh, proclaiming tolerance and yet is quite intolerant. Um, People condemn others for not being loving, and they do so in some of the most unloving ways. Some people say they are against hate, and they sound very hateful as they speak about that. And very personally, we hold love up in high regard, and yet my own actions, our own actions often fall fall short. So here's the message of Advent. There is a source of real, deep, lasting love, and it's a love that is powerful enough to transform us into people who actually do begin to love uh, more and more and truly. And this is the love that came into the world through Jesus, and that's what we celebrate when we remember Advent. So the coming of Jesus into the world, according to this text, is the display of God's own love for us. And it's as we receive this love, as we see the display of love in Advent, and then as you and I receive that love, that a transforming work happens in our hearts by the power of God's Spirit to make us begin to reflect that love to one another. One of the purposes of Advent is the creation of communities of love called local churches, the places where in the world people can look to to see that love really has come into the world, and there's a whole new way of being human together where we can actually love one another, not perfectly, but truly. And so this text shows us the connection then between Advent and the gospel culture that we so often talk about. Uh, There's a tight connection there. We do not get a culture of love in our homes, in our relationships, in our church family, merely through being told to love and talking about how much we love love. We get it by moment by moment receiving and resting in God's love for us. So this text has three steps or movement movements to it, um, two verses in each movement. And so we see the source of love and then the display of love and then the community of love. So there's a progression or movement here. There's the source of love, which is then shown in this display of love, and then that display of love actually can create communities of love. So let's walk through each one. First, the source of love. Where does it come from? What is its source? Well, John tells us that love is from God. 
And John's making a particular point here in verses 7 and 8. His point is that true Christians will inevitably love one another, not perfectly, but truly. He's saying that if you are born again, right, you have, you're regenerated, you have a new heart, that God has saved you. Uh, if you know God, then you will inevitably begin to love others. And uh, to put it another way, if you do not love, in, in the context of John here, other Christians, other brothers and sisters, then you must not be born again. You must not actually know God, no matter what you claim. So there's a direct connection John's making between knowing God and loving others. So that's the point of verses 7 and 8. Look, look at it with me. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves, whoever does this loving one another, has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So he describes true, true Christians in two ways here. They've been born of God and they know God. So that's what it means to be a Christian in part. You've experienced the new birth, um, what Jesus called being born again. You've received a new heart, a transformation of your desires at the core of your personality, and you have been brought into a relationship with God. So you know God. That's how Jesus defined eternal life, knowing the Father and the Son. And John's burden here, and really throughout this letter of 1 John, is to help Christians know that they are real Christians. He's not writing to scare people. He's actually writing to assure them because something's happened in this church community he's writing to, and their, their assurance has been shaken, and they're wondering. And so he's writing to assure them that they actually are saved, and he does this through a number of uh, tests, you could say, and one of them is the love test. So he says, one way you know you're a real Christian, and he's writing to these people to help them see that they are, is that you love one another. It's not a perfect love, but it's real. So that's his point. But in making this point, uh, he gives this motivation for why we should love one another. And it's not just because it demonstrates that we're real Christians, it's because of the source of love. It's because of where love comes from. He says we should love one another because, and he gives two phrases here, love is from God and, love, or, and God is love. So those are the two ways he puts it here. Love is from God and God is love. So God is the source of love because he is love. Those three words, God is love, are some of the most profound words in the Bible put together. God is love love. Not just God loves or is loving. God is love. Those three words are uh, the cure for our yawn at the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, we so often view the Trinity as merely confusing. And the Bible teaches there is one God who eternally existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we scratch our heads at this because it is beyond our comprehension. You, we cannot master this. It's mysterious, but it's also incredibly profound. And here's why. God is love, as John says, because God is triune. It's because He's eternity that we can say this of Him. God is love because He has eternally existed 
as a triune fellowship of love, Father, Son, and Spirit, overflowing in effusive love toward one another. Before creation, apart from creation, God is love because God has eternally existed as a fellowship of love. So you could not say God is love if God was just a force, an impersonal force. You could not say that God is love is if God is just a single, single solitary being. Love needs an object. And you can only say then if there is something essentially relational about God's nature. And so this answers the question, what was God doing before he created the world? What comes into your mind? What was God doing before he said, let there be light? Well, the answer is he was enjoying the triune fellowship of love. Here's how Jesus answered the question. At the end of his prayer in John 17, uh, in this prayer to the Father, he said, you loved me before the foundation of the world. So that's what was happening before the foundation of the world. The Father was loving the Son, and the Son was loving the Father, and the Spirit is involved in that triune fellowship of love. And so this is why John can say that love is from God, because love existed before there was anything else created. God eternally existed as a triune fellowship of love, and it's out of that, as an overflow of that love, that He shares Himself, that He creates a world of goodness. Now, this is one of the main differences between uh, Christianity, a Christian view of reality, and a naturalistic account of reality. So, in our culture today, many people are really deciding between two options. There's obviously others, various uh, religious takes on the world, but there's really two views that many are deciding between. Is the Christian God of the Bible real? Is this true? Or is this material and natural universe all there is? Um, with naturalism, the love question is a big one. Uh, and it's a problem because love would be here then as a byproduct of evolution and natural selection. So it hasn't always existed. It came about as an accident as evolution progresses. It comes about when animals and humans who would be different forms of animals developed and uh, then it'll be gone when humans and animals are gone. Love is not eternal. It's not transcendent. It's not uh, essential to reality. But in the Christian account of reality, love is at the heart of the universe. It's at the core of reality. Love is eternal because God is eternal and God is love. It was here before the world was created, and it will continue on forever. So, love didn't begin in the course of history when someone first felt affection and commitment for someone else. Love is from God. He's the source of true love. We're caught up in it. So, you don't have to believe, though, in this God of love to experience love and know that it's valuable and even think there's some transcendent quality to it. Of course, you can have a naturalistic view of reality and value and enjoy love. But the key question is, how do you account for that sense of this transcendent significance of love? How do you account for this sense of deep meaning that we feel in relationships? Why is our experience of love so meaningful? And we know it is and we want it to be. 
So this is actually, that question is a problem for a naturalistic view of reality. But it's one of the most beautiful aspects of Christian account of reality. Love feels meaningful, feels like it's transcendent, it feels like it's essential to reality because it is, because it comes from God, because God is love. He is a triune fellowship of love. So that's the first step in this movement. Love is from God. He's the source of love. And now the second step, the display of love in the next two verses, verses 9 and 10. You can see the progression or movement in verse 9 here. So John says, God is love, and then in verse 9 he says, in this, is, or in this the love of God was made manifest among us. Okay, so God is love, and that love has gone public. That love has been made manifest. It's revealed itself. It's been revealed to us. It's been displayed. So we don't just believe that God is love on blind faith. It's actually been demonstrated in space and time history. So how? Well, John notes two moments. Jesus' incarnation, first advent, and the cross as part of that. So at Advent and Good Friday, the coming of Jesus into the world and then the crucifixion of Jesus for the sins of the world. So verse 9 shows us the display of God's love at the first of those, the incarnation. So you can read it with me. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. So God sent His Son into the world. This is the mystery of what happened at that first advent 2,000 years ago. God the Son became a human being, the Son of God, eternally existing in this triune fellowship of love, became flesh, became a human being, truly God and truly man. That's what we refer to by the term incarnation. So when you think this Christmas about the baby in the manger, when you see your nativity set up, if you have one of those, uh, this is what we're seeing. We're seeing the love of God displayed for us. The triune, strong, eternal love of God displayed. Uh, how? Because the Son of God took on flesh, coming a human being, so that we might live through Him, John says. That's what we saw last week. He came to bring life. He came to us for us. So the incarnation is, we could say, the interruption of God's love into the world, into our dark world that's filled with sin, that's filled with suffering. Love came, and it came to be with us and to rescue us. So that leads then to the second display of love. So the first is Advent, the incarnation, God's Son sent into the world, and the second is the cross. Verse 10 shows God's love through the cross. So it says this, In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The cross shows us the depth of God's love. We see this in the phrase, the propitiation for our sins. We don't use that word much. It's an important one. Uh, propitiation, to propitiate means to turn away wrath or anger. So the idea here is that all of our sins against God and others deserve God's wrath and anger toward us forever doctrine of hell, and God's love is seen 
in that He doesn't let His justice have the last word. His love is seen in sending His Son to turn away His wrath and anger from us. It was turned toward Jesus on the cross so that we receive His welcome and His smile and His acceptance forever and a welcome in heaven. So, the cross shows us that God's love is not weak, it's not frothy, it's a strong love, it's a love that's stronger than death, it's a love that endures hell for us. And here's what John's showing us then. The God who is love set His heart on us in love and displayed His love to us through Christmas and the cross. And He shows the links that He goes to to welcome us into His heart. So, sometimes someone may uh, think like this. The Father was angry with us for our sins, but Jesus being the loving one, the Son being the loving one, stepped in to save us. But John is showing us that Jesus' ministry is an overflow of the love of the triune God. Uh, Father, Son, and Spirit, overflowing in love for us. Uh, the Puritan Thomas Goodwin says that Jesus does not add anything to the Father's love. He just draws it out. He demonstrates it. And so, as we read texts like this and others in the Bible, we learn that there was um, an eternal agreement between uh, the persons of the Trinity and the Father and Son in particular for this plan of redemption here. The Father planned redemption, the Son accomplishes redemption, and then the Spirit applies that work of redemption to our hearts. So, Reformed theologians have called this um, agreement that uh, is between um, the members of the Trinity, uh, the covenant of redemption. So, I want to take a few moments to read from you how one pastor explained this. Um, his name's John. Uh, I'm actually not sure how to pronounce his last name. I've heard a couple over the years, Flavel or Flavel, like Chevelle. Not sure. He was a Puritan in the 1600s, and he wrote this um, imaginative conversation between the Father and the Son. So, we get places in the Bible, in the book of Isaiah, the gospel of John, and others, where we see that the Father um, sent the Son, the Son embraced that decision and came, and so they're agreeing together on this plan of redemption. And so, we don't have a window into what that agreement is like. It's kind of beyond our comprehension. What, what does that look like for an eternal God to make this plan? Don't know. But here's an imaginative, imaginative take that these uh, Puritan pastors in the 1600s would often do. And so, uh, this helps us understand how the incarnation and the cross are an expression of the triune love of God. So, here's the dialogue that um, this pastor wrote. Father, speaking, my son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? The Son, O oh, my Father, such is my love to and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after-reckonings with them. At my hand shall thou require it. I'll rather choose to suffer thy wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all their debt. The Father, but my son, 
If thou undertake for them, you must reckon to pay the last cent. Expect no discounts. If I spare them, I will not spare you. Content, Father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I'm content to undertake it. That gets at the heart of God and his plan of redemption. We don't know what it unfolded like, imaginative. Um, we also know that this was the father planning as well. So this doesn't represent all of reality, but my goodness. <laughs> when we look at the cradle of Jesus and when we look at the cross, we are seeing that this is the love that stands behind it. It doesn't just show up out of nowhere. It's part of a story. And all those for whom Jesus died were on his heart in that moment to receive them to himself through this suffering, to be a propitiation for their sins. And so given this reality, how should that change our lives? Well, at some, at some level, I feel like it's, it's trivializing it for me to even try to draw out some things because if you rest in this and receive this, I mean, just imagine if this is on your mind and heart and your heart is melted and at the dinner table when something might, have, might bother you, imagine how you would act differently if this was just pressing on you and melting your heart. You would be a different kind of person. Um, transforming grace of God. So we'll, we'll move though to verses 11 to 12 because it gives us a glimpse of what difference this should make. This is, so we have the source of love as a triune God, the display of love in Jesus' incarnation, life, death, and resurrection, and his ongoing care for us. And this love now, when it's seen in the world, creates a community of love. So that's the third movement here, the community of love. There's a, a plain way and a profound way that John makes this point. John gives both of them to us. So first, the plain way is verse 11. He says, beloved, right, loved ones. That's what a Christian is, loved one. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So if God has loved us like this, if God has set his heart on us from eternity past, if God has shown the great lengths uh, that he would go to love us in the incarnation of the cross. We should love one another. <laughs> That's his point. Very plain. In other words, the doctrine of the love of God, as it's received and embraced by faith, should transform us to be able to reflect that love to one another. So, in other words, gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. The focus here is love. So much of the Christian life is adjusting to the reality that God really loves us from His heart, and then we let that reality work its way into our soul and melt us so that we then are transformed to reflect that love to others. So that's the plain way to make the point. He also has a profound way. Verse 12, uh, let's read this together closely and think it through. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another… God abides, remains in us, and His love is perfected or completed in us. 
So no one has seen God. That seems odd at first. Why mention that no one's ever seen God? Because even though we can't see God, we can experience His love. And where does that happen? The rest of this verse tells us. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is completed or perfected in us. So we can't see God, but as we live in a gospel culture of love, we can experience God's presence and His own love uh, among us. Here's how John Stott put it. The unseen God who once revealed Himself in His Son now reveals Himself in His people if and when they love one another. Do you want to see God? Then you can see Him if and when we love one another in a fellowship of love. It's amazing. So here's the movement of the whole section. God is love. He shows His love through the gospel in Jesus' incarnation and cross. Um, and really everything's assumed by that. Resurrection, outpouring of the Spirit in Jesus. And then this gospel transforms us to then actually live differently, to reflect the love of Christ to one another, to embody God's very presence, His love. God abides in us, uh, and to embody His love. His love is perfected in us. So the doctrine of God's love transforms us to contribute to and cultivate a culture of love. So this tells us something profound about what every church can be. If the doctrine of the love of God is central and the Holy Spirit opens us up to it. This is the reality we can enjoy. And if you experience a culture that's not this, you can guarantee that the love of God is not being openly treasured in the hearts by the power of the Spirit. So how do we actually experience this in our real everyday lives? Maybe, you have, maybe you've experienced this love from others, but you are so discouraged, I often am, so discouraged about how little you feel you are extending this to others. You feel resentful sometimes, annoyed, irritated. How do you experience this transformed love that we're talking about? Well, the answer is not to say, I know God loves me. I'm just having a hard time loving other people. Like, these things don't have to do with one another. I get, I get doctrine. I get God's love. I understand the incarnation. I'm just having trouble. No, the answer is to bring those things together, right? You may get it in your head, and you might be bored with it or just merely intellectually uh, intrigued by it. But to open up your heart, to bring your whole self honestly before God, to confess your deepest sins to Him, and to receive His grace relationally, not merely transactionally, that has a, melt, a melting effect on your heart by the Spirit so that you, you are calmed in your heart. Uh, it displaces the idols that you cling to that actually cause you to be angry. Because rather than just wanting your way, you're fine with God's way. Right? Rather than you getting the attention, honor, or comfort you feel like you deserve, you say, the Lord loves me. I don't deserve an ounce. How can I bless others now? How can I display this love to others? So it's like ice melting by the warmth of the sun. Right? You put an ice cube out. Wouldn't happen today probably. But you put an ice cube out on the sidewalk, and the sun is out, and you just watch it melt. Right? That's what happens when we bring our hearts under the warmth of the love of God. Uh, the sun of His love melts us and transforms us. And so we need to, if you want to become a loving person, you need to put your heart under His love. 
You need to receive it from his word, from preaching the gospel to yourself, from speaking it to one another, from being here on Sundays and not just listening, but opening yourself up to his word. Um, This is how it happens in dependence on the spirit. And this applies to every moment of life, every role we serve in. Parents, uh, your main job is not to help your child adjust to society, as important as that is, or to learn math and science well, or to get a successful job. The main thing they need from you is to hear about and to see and to experience the love of God in Jesus. Uh, Kids, youth, your main task in life is not to learn all the things you're learning, though that is a central vocation of your life, uh, learning physics and geometry and business. But the main task of your life is to, in it all, through it all, around it all, Behold the love of God for you in Jesus. Get to know this triune God who loves you and has rescued you into a relationship with himself through faith. For those of you who are married, God created marriage to put his love on display. Marriage is a little gospel drama to the world. As husbands love their wives, as Christ loved the church, and as wives bring themselves under that loving leadership of a husband, that's to be a display of God's love in the world. And so, not just in public, but in private. So, a wife should never think. He shows love to me in public, but people really have no idea what he's like at home. No, the gospel is displayed when a wife can say, people see how he treats me in public, but they have no idea how good it is to know him in the home and how kind he is. That's the love of God that transforms a heart and is displayed to the world. So, the burden of this text is for Christians to cultivate this love for one another, to love one another in the context of a church. It's, it, the burden is to create cultures of love. This is what every church needs. This is what we need. So some of you have been hurt by Christians or churches. You, you have experienced the opposite of this. You would say, I lived through a, a, an anti-gospel culture, and I'm still wounded from it. And that's why this text is so important for us, because it shows us that if we claim to know God, then it should transform us. Every church needs the power of the doctrine of God's love working at ground level uh, in, our, in our hearts. And so that's why we need to keep the triune God of love central, keep celebrating it, keep celebrating Him. And maybe you have never experienced the warmth of God's love. Maybe you are wondering, what would it be like to become a Christian to follow Jesus? Um, well, here's what it can look like right now. You take yourself and you put yourself under God's presence and love and you receive. You hold on empty hands of faith and you receive the warmth of his love. Uh, You trust Jesus as the propitiation for your sins, which means he takes God's wrath and anger from you that you rightly deserve for your sins, but instead you receive his welcome and grace. And then you enjoy a lifelong and and eternity long enjoyment of receiving that love over and over and enjoying that in a gospel culture that we're all called to cultivate. So, um, what, a, what a reality. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. This is more beautiful and good than we could make up, which is one of the reasons why we know it's true. Confirms it. We thank you that the love that we feel and know is significant 
We thank you that it is and that it has its source in you. We thank you for revealing your love through Jesus, and we thank you for bringing that to our hearts. Uh, We pray that you would help us to experience this culture of love and love for one another in ways that we've never experienced before. We pray that you would take us deeper into your love and surprise us even in the rest of this month and this coming year with the joy we can experience together when your spirit is doing this work. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.